Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone, welcome back to the History Hit World Wars podcast. If it's your first time here, then we are dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. You join me as I'm at home with my nose deep in a mountain of books on Second World War Scandinavia, specifically Second World War Copenhagen, because we're doing a new episode for History Hit TV on the resistance, on the occupation, and the ultimate liberation of Denmark, of Copenhagen, in May 1945. If you want to keep an eye on this and keep a watch, then follow us on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2 and on Instagram at JamesRogersHistory. In this episode, we're keeping with the Second World War theme because we're jumping back to an episode that was originally recorded for Dan Snow's History Hit, where Dan talks with the late, great Paddy Ashdown. Paddy was, of course, the head of the Liberal Democrats for over a decade, but he was also in the Special Boat Service, he was a Royal Marine and a diplomat, but also a historian of the Second World War. And he talks to Dan about his book on assassination attempts on Hitler, It's fascinating to think that from the very start of the war, Hitler's top generals, those at the very top of his regime, tried to make sure that in the first instance, Hitler didn't start the war, and that if he did, he wouldn't win it. People like Admiral Canaris, who we owe such a debt of gratitude to. He was the head of German military intelligence, a spy master, and he said that if Germany loses, it would be a catastrophe for Germany, but if Hitler wins, it would be a catastrophe for mankind. And so it was his job, along with hundreds, if not thousands of others, to try and frustrate this. Now, they tried to kill him up to ten times, and some of them are, well, quite bizarre ways. One was hiding explosives in a bottle of Cointreau and then putting that onto Hitler's plane. It took immense moral courage to plan and carry out these attacks, and many, of course, were killed, executed, as they attempted to do this. And so please follow, like, share and subscribe and enjoy this podcast with the great Paddy Ashdown. Paddy, thank you very much for coming back on the podcast. It seems like yesterday that you had another clap book out. Now you've got this absolute barnstormer. What's going on? Haven't you got a day job? I, I do it in the corners of my life, Dan, as you know very well. I do it waiting on planes and 
uh, waiting for trains and waiting for people from podcasts to turn up. Not you, of course, because you arrive smack on time, as I know. So I do it. Jane calls it my train set, and it keeps me out of mischief. By the way, I'm on my next one now, which has to become, come out next year as well. Uh, you're being very modest about this one. I mean, your, your previous ones were Tales of Daring Do. Mm. This one, I mean, this one is a big and important bit of history. It's an ignored bit of history, Dan. Um, and let me tell you why. That Actually, I didn't have to discover too much in the archives. I've discovered a bit, including this famous spy ring that actually I discovered is being run by um, the German uh, um, resistors themselves, although the Soviet Union, uh, the GRU, of not insignificant fame just at the moment, runs this spy ring, which they claim was the greatest spy ring in Second World War, arguably, in intelligence history. But it turns out I've discovered to have been supplied with information direct from the German Abwehr that they wanted to get to um, to get to Russia so that uh, Hitler would lose on the Eastern Front with the assistance of MI6 and, uh, and of the Swiss intelligence, which is quite fun, isn't it? So the reason why, and it is, a, it is in a way a scandal, after the Second World War, here we were, carved Germany up into three, occupied it, um, um, Unconditional surrender, uh, Nuremberg trials, uh, and of course, by the way, we shipped a hell of a lot of their industrial base over to Britain, which we then used. We more or less pillaged it, calling it war retribution. So it wasn't awfully convenient for the Western allies, or indeed anybody, to ever believe they'd been good Germans. Um, and so the calumny, the great lie was put about that the German resistance only started when it was obvious that Hitler was going to lose. This is absolute nonsense. It started in 1933, 1934. At the top, this is not about the small people. They're remarkable, the White Rose students and so on. They're remarkable in their own way. But this is about the people at the very top. All of them had been supporters of Hitler, thought he was necessary to put Germany right in 1933. By 1936, they realised that his unique evil... He combined two things which I think are unusual, probably, in modern history. First of all, um, a really manic, deep, deep evil. And secondly, a genius for handling power. And so they committed themselves from 1936, 1937, to preventing him from winning the war. First of all, to stopping the war happening, so they come across and tell us in 1938 that he's about to invade um, uh, Czechoslovakia, come on to that in a minute. Then later they pass us his plans and they seek to kill him about 10 times, I think, in all up to the 20th of July. So all of this and the existence of these people, not all of them flawless, but all of them with immense moral courage, who from the very top of his regime tried to make sure that he did not go to war and when he went to war tried to make sure that he would not win it. Canaris, Admiral Canaris said on the day war was launched, yeah, if Germany loses, this will be a catastrophe for Germany. But if, if Hitler wins, it will be a catastrophe for mankind. And our job is to stop it. That was very unpopular. Nobody wanted to know that. And in Germany, after the war, many of these people had were regarded as traitors, some of whom had been responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands of German soldiers, for instance, in the great Battle of Kursk. So there was this conspiracy of silence. There were books written by the spies about the spying. There were books written about the peacemakers. There were books written about the plots to kill him. But um, nobody ever put that together. And then sort of by 1950, 
the story had fallen out of any interest at all. It became lost. And what I've basically done is rediscovered that story, put it together. Um, and, um, and it is, as you say, I hope, at least a complementary view on the history of the Second World War, which has so far been ignored. And why it's a scandal is these people were outstandingly morally courageous. And one of them, as you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who died along with Canaris, hung at Plotzensee Prison and hung foully too. After the war, three months after the end of the war, a public service was held at Trinity Church off the Brompton Road, celebrating his martyrdom. And it was excoriated by the popular press, you can imagine who. But today, um, what was it, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, they discovered 10 empty plaques, 10 empty alcoves above the west door of Westminster Abbey. And they filled them with the statues of the modern martyrs, the 10 modern martyrs. And one of them is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. What was your way into this story? How did you come across it all? It was very odd, you know, like, I mean, you know your way into this, that, that you catch a little thread somewhere and you pull in it and out comes all of this extraordinary story. So here I am, what is it, two and a half years ago, I suppose, sitting in London City Airport, doodling around on a website. And I saw a website which, which was headed British Spies. So I thought I'd go on to that and look at it. To my complete horror, I found I was on there. Uh, but also uh, lie, of course. I mean, I wouldn't be able to admit that or I'd have to have to eat you or something. So uh, and on there was this extraordinary woman, Halina Szymanska. She's a Pole, a Polish woman. And so I went in and looked up her up. And hang on, she was rescued by Canaris, um, by the head of the German Abwehr um, in Poland straight after the invasion amidst the slaughter. And he smuggled her back to Berlin put her and her two daughters, one of whom is going to be, has helped me to write this book, put her and her two daughters um, in the house of the Spanish ambassador. And then he and his wife, Erika Canaris, smuggled them over in a sealed train, guarded by fellow resistors in the Abwehr, over the border into Switzerland, where she was installed in the flat, became an MI6 and Polish spy, and then became the interlocutor, personal interlocutor. He visited her in disguise in Bern several times during the war between himself and the head of MI6. Right, yeah. So she is installed in a flat about 300 metres from the British embassy. She becomes recruited by the Polish intelligence because she makes contact with them and by British intelligence. Her, um, she's then lives there and Canaris comes to visit her three or four times in the war and he has an interlocutor that he places in the German consulate in Zurich who acts as the intermediary between the two and he takes her out to dinner in Milan um, and he gives her information, not military information but political information about the difficulties Hitler's going through, about what he's planning etc. And this is a direct contact now between the head of German intelligence in a building called the Tirpitzhofer, which is still there, in Berlin, straight through to Sir Stuart Mingus, the head of MI6, which then passes the information on to Churchill, including, um, interestingly, some information about Sea Lion. During Sea Lion, Canaris quite deliberately boosts the strength of British forces in um, in Kent, um, able to resist. And he then does everything he can to frustrate Hitler's, um, Hitler's 
possibilities of success. Probably along with the information that was passed, we'll get onto that in a minute, the military information that was passed to us and the Russians, I think his greatest contribution to defeating Hitler was persuading Franco not to join Hitler in an attack on Gibraltar, not to give Hitler permission to move German troops through Spain. Certainly after the war, certainly Goering uh, claims, and I think with justification, that Hitler's biggest mistake when he captured France was not to keep the momentum southwest by capturing Spain and then Gibraltar, but to turn north against Britain. And at that, in that interval, um, Canaris persuades Franco, behind the scenes, not to support Hitler, not to join the Axis and not to allow German troops. If he hadn't done that, and if Franco had joined Hitler, he's right on the edge of doing so, then I think the course of the war would have been different. I mean, with Gibraltar captured, the Mediterranean would have been an Axis lake. There'd have been no North African campaign. Our route to India would have been much more difficult than it turned out to be. And so I think his greatest achievement um, is forcing Hitler to turn north against Britain. And then when Britain proved too stubborn and sea lion failed again with Canaris' help slightly, he was forced to turn east against Russia. And that's where the whole next part of the story comes. And so Canaris, who's head of German military intelligence, effectively, very, very important guy. He, who, who's helping him? Or is he working alone? No, he's not. I mean, first of all, you need to explain that German military intelligence was, in effect, German foreign intelligence as well. So it's not just an intelligence service serving the German army, but it's also doing all the foreign spying. So that's a crucial point. And in the Tirpitzhofer, in Abwehr headquarters in Berlin, there is a secret cell called um, Department X, run by the man to whom the book is dedicated, a man called Hans, Hans Oster, a remarkable man. Uh, and he coordinates the entire passage of information to the West and subsequently to Russia. He coordinates the plots to assassinate Hitler. He provides them with false documentation when they need to nip across the channel to warn us about Czechoslovakia coming in 1938. He provides the uh, explosive used in the bombs, um, which were ultimately the bomb, the 20th of July bomb, and the other, the other bombs were constructed. One, one in two bottles of Cointreau, which was put on board um, uh, Hitler's um, aircraft flying back from Smolensk in 1942. By the way, the explosive that was used was all British explosive, captured from the French resistance, set off by a British time pencil, because that was the only fuse, time fuse there was, which was silent. And in this particular case, um, when the Cointreau bottle was put on board Hitler's aircraft in Smolensk, everything worked except the British time pencil, and Hitler survived. Um, and, and so talk to me about uh, passing... This. I mean, the central proposition of the book is this. We might go into the 1938 plot in a minute. But the central proposition of this was that this Second World War was the war that didn't have to be, didn't have to start. And the war which, once it had started, didn't have to um, end with a peace that handed over Eastern Europe to the Soviet Union. And why is that? Because if if British source, if the British had been more receptive to these... To these... Well, let's go through this to start with. So the, the first chapter of the book 
opens in the National Liberal Club, where else? In London, in a corner alcove. The year is 1937. A man called Karl Gödler, head of the civilian part of the resistance, comes over <clears throat> and he warns us um, in the summer of 1937, Hitler is intent on war. He will attack Czechoslovakia in, in 1938. If you, Britain, will stand up to him, we will mount a coup to remove him. Um, and British pay no attention to that because it's not congenial for an appeasement-run government to even consider this matter. In August 1938, that is a month or so, a bit more than that, six weeks before the Czechoslovak invasion, a second man comes over, this time representing the German army generals, the, the, the general staff. His name is <coughs> Erwald Kleist von, von Schmenzin. He goes to see Van Sittart, Eden's advisor, and gives him the same story. Van Sittart's very impressed with him and thinks this is serious. And he writes a, mem a, a minute to Eden saying, look, we ought to take this plot seriously and see if it is going to help us stop the war. Eden dismisses it and suppresses the minute. Kleist Schmenzen then goes down to see Churchill in Chartwell, tells him the same story. Says, what we need from you is a clear indication from the British government that you will stand up to Hitler. And if you do that, we will mount a coup, which will remove him at the moment he gives the order for the armies to march. Churchill rings up Halifax, says, look, I want to give this man a letter. Here's the terms of it. Halifax agrees. Halifax, the foreign secretary. Churchill gives them the letter. They plan the coup. That's not enough. Um, in the latter, in the early days of September 1938, Sudetenland and the invasion is just weeks away, they send a third emissary over. This is a woman called Suzanne, Suzanne Simonis. She's a journalist. She comes under false papers provided by Canaris. She has in her head a message, which can't be written down, which she um, relates to her brother, a man called Eric Court, in the German embassy. Court is invited through the back door of Number 10 Downing Street, goes into Number 10 Downing Street twice to deliver this message, once to Halifax personally. And so, based on the fact that the British are going to stand up to Hitler when he tells the armies to march on Sudeten, and they put the coup together. So the coup is now in place. It's the 28th of September. There are about 50 people scattered in buildings around the Hitler's chancellery, students, army officers, members of the Abwehr, members of the, of, the, uh, of the German Foreign Office. They're ready to take Hitler in the chancellery. The back door has been secretly unlocked. There are only 15 SS guards in there. And in support of this coup, every one of the senior German generals is in support of it. Every one of the generals in charge of the army around Berlin is in support of it. The, the chief of the Berlin secret, the chief of the Berlin police supports the plot. The, and the senior members of the Foreign Office support the plot. The morning ticks on. There's a great scurrying and a great tension. The British ambassador, the French ambassador, the Italian ambassador visit Hitler. And then suddenly, with an hour to go, up pops Chamberlain and says, let's have Munich. And of course, in Munich, we handed over Sudetenland without a shot. So the coup collapses. And the reason I think Chamberlain did that was because he saw himself as the peacemaker of the age. He didn't believe the plot was serious, and Churchill certainly believed it was serious. And he believed he could play his part by bringing about a peace without the coup taking place. So this was the war that didn't have to be, if only we believed it. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Did we learn to listen to them as the war went on? So, so the invasion of Russia, for example, Soviet Union? Well, we didn't, unfortunately, because what happens next, and now war is launched, the next thing they want to do is stop its becoming a world war. So they warn us several times that there's going to be an, the next assault will be on Poland. They give us the plans. They give us the date. We get that information handed on to the Polish government. They don't believe it. Then the Polish invasion takes place, now the 1st of September. Walking through the turpits of a canary stops a friend of his and says, if, if Germany wins, loses this war, it'll be a catastrophe, but if Hitler wins, it'll be a catastrophe for mankind. Our job is now to frustrate this. So now, using a network of spies that we've uncovered, Helena Szymanska, the mistress of the deputy head of the, uh, of the Abwehr, who's a French spy, um, and a third man who's a German Abwehr agent, very close to Canaris. They then pass us the date and the plans for his invasion of Norway. Um, we hand it over to the Norwegian government. They refuse to believe it and are taken by surprise when suddenly they find the Germans actually occupying Oslo. So they then tell us the date of the invasion of the lowlands, the date of the invasion in France, and they give us the plans that, in fact, what's going to happen is that the German armies are going to come through the Ardennes forest, which is thought to be impossible for tanks, instead of throwing themselves against the Maginot line. And having broken through the line, they're going to leap, sweep or sweep north to trap the British expeditionary force against the French coast, which is exactly what happened. We refuse to believe them. And the reason is tied up with the Venlo incident, which happens just at the wrong time. We believe this is Soviet, uh, the German disinformation. And so France is captured. Now they get a bit fed up with the fact that they're giving us this priceless information, but we're not using it. So they turn their attention to Russia. Barbarossa is now coming up, the great Russian invasion, in the, in the summer of <clears throat> 1941. Uh, they tell, along with many other sources, they tell Stalin that Barbarossa is going to take place. Stalin doesn't believe it and is again taken by surprise with the Germans sweep forward. By now, the GRU, the um, Soviet military intelligence, has established a network called the Dora Ring in Geneva, um, which is now in contact with Moscow through two British radio operators, trained British radio operators, and a woman who is the daughter of a, um, an Oxford professor. 
Uh, and they are now tapping out on shortwave radio through to, to Moscow. Low-level intelligence, but suddenly... In the, early, um, in the early months of 1941, about a month before Barbarossa, the whole quality of their intelligence now becomes exceptional. They're now getting the German battle plans. What I've discovered is that they were, in fact, infiltrated um, by Swiss intelligence and MI6, who knew perfectly well what was happening. They were getting the intelligence being sent through from the Abwehr. And because Stalin refused to believe ultra because he thought this is a British deception plot. What they're actually doing is passing crucial British uh, military intelligence, unknown to the Russians, through the Dora Ring, straight to the GRU. And so they now give, <clears throat> they now give um, the GRU Moscow centre what's going to happen in the battle for Moscow. They give them the key uh, German plans to try and assault through a pier- an area around Stalingrad that the Germans thought was unoccupied, and they give them the battle plans for the Battle of Kursk, which reach the Russian generals by this means before they actually get to the German generals on the front line. And I know how they did it. <clears throat> we worked out how they did it. They did it by the, t- the Abwehr used the Abwehr secret communication system to communicate this information through to the Abwehr station in Milan. It was then taken by courier to the lake of Chiasso, which is on the southern Swiss-Italian um, border. So from they, they take it by courier from Milan to Chiasso, which is on the southern edge of the Swiss-Italian um, border. It's then put onto the Swiss, Bunde, the Swiss um, postal train, the train, po- sorry. It's then put onto the Swiss train postal service and taken through to the depot in Lucerne, where it's picked up by a spy called Rudolf Rossler, and then handed over through the various channels to, to obfuscate how it's getting there, through to the Dora Ring to send to Moscow. And they were doing that. Some say that they were getting the plans within 24 hours of them being drawn up in Berlin. I don't think it was quite that fast, but it was certainly faster than sometimes the plans were getting through to the German generals. So uh, an astonishing advantage for the Soviets defending? Yeah, I would say that, um, I mean, certainly, I'm not sure it helped in the battle to resist them in Moscow, but certainly it helped in the battle for Stalingrad, that they knew where the German attack was coming, the crucial German attack. But biggest of all, I think, was Kursk, because, as you know, this was the greatest tank battle of the Second World War. It was the key turning point of the Second World War, probably arguably greater than Alamein, in truth. And certainly, I mean, you cannot say that the information provided through the Dora Ring, I think, was uniquely and solely responsible for the Russian um, victory at Kursk and the smashing of the final breaking of the German armies, but it was certainly a contributory factor. And so what happens? Why does your book end rather worryingly in 1944? Well, <clears throat> you see, a parallel to this, <clears throat> there are two other strands of what they're trying to do. The, what they were known as the Schwarzerkapelle, the Black Orchestra, were trying to do. The first was, the first was to kill Hitler. And so there are literally... Um, I've counted seven major attempts on his life, which he escapes miraculously. They think they must be protected by some malign force um, up until July the 20th. Everybody thinks July the 20th was the only plot. It wasn't. It was about the 10th plot. And there are probably some we didn't know about because, A, they didn't succeed, and, B, the people who perpetrated them got killed after the July the 20th roundup. So certainly seven to ten serious plots against them. And they're organising this, they're providing the intelligence, they're providing the you know, false documentation, they're coordinating the whole process from the centre of the advert. 
So that's the second thing, kill Hitler. The third thing is um, they're seeking with the Allies to uh, establish an early peace. And an organization which is attached to them called the Kreisau Circle, after um, James von Mulke, the grandson of the great Pro Franco hero of the Franco-Prussian War, they're now drawing up the constitution of West Germany after the, after the coup takes place which is almost exactly the constitutional West Germany has at present. They're inventing the social market economy. They're inventing the industrial partnership, which was part of Germany's economic success uh, you know, after the war. And from 1942 onwards, they are writing papers which are sent secretly to Churchill in 1944, saying that after the war, in order to contain the contagion and disease of European nationalism, there will have to be a united Europe, with a president of Europe, a council of Europe, and a European parliament. This is five years before Monet and Schumann. Unfortunately, what then happens is that after the July the 20th plot, the Gestapo finally find them. They are all rounded up. Probably probably the, the, um, the von Stauffenberg plot involved about 4,000 people, spread right across the whole of Germany. As soon as the plot went off, there was an alternative government that would take over. The Gestapo probably were rounded up and killed <clears throat> probably 5,000 in all. All the key, per the, most of those are killed in, in, in private, in the dark, but the key perpetrators, Canaris, well actually not Canaris, but the others, um, are all tried before the people's courts, sham trials, and then taken off and killed and killed foully um, after... When Canaris is finally hung, along with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as he struggles, because they were killed very slowly with, I don't think it was piano wire, but it was very, very narrow rope that enabled them to control the process of dying. And, and one of the Abwehr officers who watched Canaris' death, the old, gen, the old admiral took a long time to die. We helped him by lowering him down and lifting him up again. So they died horribly. Um, and as they died, um, you could hear the sounds, the guns of the approaching German American army about to liberate them. So right at the very end of the war. After the war, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is memorialised as one of the modern martyrs um, in the uh, at Westminster Abbey. And today, all of them are now recognised as people of immense moral courage. Not flawless, but immense moral courage who fought for the Germany that we see today and would have felt entirely at home in the Europe that we see today. Uh, well, just a quick question. The Black Orchestra, I mean, did they have, did they have meetings? Did they all go out for dinner in secret rooms and things, or was it all...? They did a bit. Some of them did. I mean, it's very dispersed. By the time the um, von Stauffenberg's plot is in place, there are coup elements in Vienna, in Paris, in almost every German town. There is a complete alternative government. That's the problem. They had to keep records. The records were found. Who's going to be Minister of Agriculture? Who's going to be the new Chancellor? So this was now a very widespread organisation which they'd built up over the three or four years. Um, and so at that stage, it was coordinated from the centre, but there was a very widespread plot. But at the beginning, in 1938-39, Yes, they met in a place called the Mittwochergestelle, uh, which because it always met met on Wednesdays, and five or six of them got together and planned the thing right from the start. But it grew, and it grew right under the eyes of the Gestapo, and the Gestapo never saw it. And the reason for that is, you know, to begin to investigate a high-ranking person in Germany was not that decision was not taken on security grounds, taken on political grounds. And if these people were high enough, you dare not investigate them. <laughs> Um, and so they, the whole thing grew beneath them and they never spotted it until the very end.
Did you find yourself writing this book just getting depressed all the time about the counterfactuals, thinking, oh, what if? I mean, these people were important. They had access to every lever of government. They must have come so close on so many occasions. It must have been heartbreaking to write. Well, I tell you what was absolutely appalling, painful, terrible to write was the last chapter, because in the end, having been turned down by the West... Here's a proposition that was made by James von Wilke in January 1944. Churchill and Roosevelt, in order to keep Stalin on board, had insisted on unconditional surrender. So every time they came up and said, look, we'll get rid of Hitler, here's the kind of deal we'd like, to, as an early piece. And they said, no, unconditional surrender. We must you know, completely flatten Germany, press the restart button. And so in 1944, um, in order to get round unconditional surrender, he takes a plan to Istanbul, which is handed over to the Cia. OSS, uh, while Bill Donovan and, of course, MI6, who got a hold of it as well, and the British government did, um, which basically says, we know you're going to invade the north of France this year. We know the invasion is going to happen. When it does, we'll remove Hitler in a coup. Rommel would have been involved in that coup, by the way, tangentially. Uh, and then we will open up the entire Western Front. You can march straight through to Berlin. You can occupy Germany, full stop i.e. unconditional surrender, provided we can move our troops to the Eastern Front to protect um, the Soviet invasion of Eastern Europe and of and the breaking up of Germany. So actually, if that had plotted, if that proposal had been accepted, I'm not sure I would have accepted it, but it should certainly have been considered. You have to think what it would have done. This is the counterfactual. That in fact, that would have saved thousands and thousands and thousands of lives as we had to fight our way across Germany. And it would have saved the whole of Eastern Europe 50 years of enslavement under the Soviet yoke. This was out of hand rejected. It wasn't even considered seriously. Um, and, so, and so now, um, desperate in the end, and this is the heartbreaking bit of the book, finally, they say, it doesn't matter if we can't get a piece after this. I'm sorry about this. Apple, come here. Apple, come here. This is not the first pet we've had in the podcast. <laughs> Come here. So finally, von Stauffenberg and the others get together and say, it does not matter if we cannot shorten the war. We must show the world that there were good Germans prepared to stand up to this evil. And we must carry out this coup, even though we don't think it's going to succeed. And the utter black desperation in which they, the context in which they carried out the 20th of July plot, which then, by a miracle, Hitler survived again. And then they were rounded up and killed. And, and that was, you know, that was really difficult to write. It was painful to write, and I think very painful to read as well. Well, I think you should still try it out, everybody. Paddy Ashdown, nine, standing up to Hitler, 935 to 44. Just quickly, Paddy, everyone's excited. What's your next book? Are you allowed to tell us what you're working on at the moment? Yeah, I can. I've been up in, in many ways, sort of bread and butter stuff. I've been asked to write the history of the SBS. And by the way, you know, I thought I knew this. I mean, I know my way around that territory, as you know, reasonably well. But it's improving an extraordinary it's book, isn't it? Sorry, the, the history of the SBS during the war. I'm not allowed to go further than 1948 or I have to eat you again. Um, but it is nevertheless an extraordinary story, most of which I didn't know. Such fun, such boys' own, such boys own glory and joy. <laughs> That's going to be fun to read as well. Thank you very much for coming back on the podcast. Thank you very much indeed for doing it, Dan. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.